This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Butnick, and today I'm joined by two completely different co-hosts. That's right, it's Purim, and in the spirit of shaking things up and in a nod to the holiday's many feminist interpretations, I've invited two of my favorite Jewish thinkers, both former Unorthodox guests, to help me helm today's Purim episode. So I'm here with author and Parsha in Progress podcast host, Abigail Pogerbin. It's great to see you. And our resident PhD student in Jewish thought, Kylie Younell. Hello, I love that title. Yes, you're ours now. I know you go to an actually accredited (laughs) university, but you're ours now. So Abby, Kylie, I think you two are some of the smartest people on all things Jewish. You have just great modern takes with a lot of nuanced background and historical yichas, as they say. So So ladies, if I may, let's start with the story of Purim. I'm going to give the like Hebrew school version of the story so that for someone who's never heard of this holiday, they'll know a little bit about it. And then we'll like get into the weeds, analyze it, dissect it, interpret it. I feel like we should have Destiny's Child Independent Women Part 1 playing (laughs) when we open this. (laughs) I know. Well, maybe we could like string that in the background. There you go. We are the Charlie's Angels of Purim. <laughs> okay, so Purim, which starts tonight, Thursday, February 25th, or the 14th day of the Hebrew month of Adar. This holiday commemorates the foiling of Haman's plot to kill all the Jews, as told in the book of Esther. So the brief 101 is Haman was an advisor to King Ahasuerus in ancient Persia. And the story really starts with this big party. Ahasuerus loved parties, loved drinking and regaling his guests. But this party did not go so well. Ahasuerus calls for his wife, Vashti, to appear before his guests and to show her beauty. And he wants her to appear in some sort of like debated state of nudity. And she refuses. And so she's either sort of cast out or killed, depending on who's telling the story and how old you are. And then once his queen is out of the picture, he needs a new queen. So he basically puts on like a countrywide beauty pageant to look for his new bride. And Esther, whose uncle is Mordecai, is convinced to enter the pageant and hide her Jewishness and see what happens. And this idea being that maybe you can get close to the king and really help out the Jews of Shushan of Persia. And It's basically like a Jewish miscongeniality prequel because she gets picked to be the new queen. Surprise. And Mordecai becomes her sort of eyes and ears to the outside world. He gets wind of a plot to kill the Jews. And Esther tells the king who deals with it. I think having more people killed, it sounds like. And then Haman, who's his trusted advisor, he goes on this big ego trip, right? He decides he wants the Jews to bow to him. They won't. He has some particular grievances with Mordecai, and he decides that he wants to kill all the Jews. He needs to get rid of all the Jews in Persia. And he does a sort of lottery to pick the day, which is why it's called Purim, which means lots in Hebrew. Anyway, long story short, Esther intervenes, reveals her Jewish identity, saves the day, Haman gets hanged, and we all shake roggers and eat hamantaschen. That is the story of Purim. How am I doing so far, ladies? Beautiful. So well, gold star, gold star. <laughs> Thank you both. It's You're so much more reassuring than my typical co-host. So Abby, let's start with you. Your most recent book was called My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wondering Jew. So you spent a year immersing yourself in all sorts of things Jewish, but particularly the Jewish calendar and its holidays. So, so I'm curious about Purim. What did you go into this book thinking about the holiday? And how did your experience learning it as an adult complicate that and make it a little more nuanced and textured? Well, I I basically always was annoyed by this holiday because it was like sort of enforced mirth and frivolity that I just felt like all of a sudden we have to put on these costumes, which I've never particularly loved, and put on kind of bad skits and bad songs. And it's not that everyone isn't really trying their best, but it was never as fun as it seemed like it was supposed to be. I learned going into this deep dive of the holidays that ultimately, you know, it's a huge contrast that we have like all of this enforced drunkenness and inebriation debauchery around an incredibly sober event, which was a near extermination. So that, first of all, squaring why we as a people have chosen to celebrate with joy and costumes our near wiping out is something that I think maybe we want to unpack. And it's one of those few times where Jews, even though we are we are very good at ripping our jackets in mourning, we also end up choosing maybe joy and drunkenness over the memory of near death. But the bigger takeaway for me was that we have a, a heroine, a hero here that I think is very underserved and undersold, and that's Esther. I didn't realize she was essentially like, in a way, the Melania of her time, although I think, frankly, she has more character and courage. But she was not, this was not her choice to be the queen. And she was a virgin, one in a line that is chosen, as you said, against her will. 
and basically is a queen that some say is in golden handcuffs because it's nice to be in the palace, but she doesn't have a lot of control. And suddenly there is something put before her where she can save her people single-handedly, she is the only one to do it. And there's that incredible line that Mordechai, her cousin, says to her, maybe you were put on this earth for this moment. That, to me, has a completely contemporary resonance, which, when I was interviewing scholars and rabbis about it, they kept coming back to the Sheryl Sandberg analogy. It's Esther's lean-in moment, and how many of us have had a moment where we basically either shied away from rising to the task or saying, you know what, maybe I was put on earth to do something here. By the way, I totally forgot that it was a beauty pageant of virgins. That That, that is a detail that has escaped my mind, maybe on purpose. So Kylie, last time you were on the show, you told us about a Moses Mendelssohn Shabbat dinner that you hosted as part of Rooted, which is a community of millennial and Gen Z Jews that you've created and cultivated in New York City. So if like on a regular Shabbat, you're toasting the father of the Jewish Enlightenment with pretzel challah, <laughs> I have to imagine you have a very modern interpretation and take on the story of Purim and its twin female figures, Esther and Vashti. So complicate this for us. We need all the takes from you. So I've been thinking a lot about him in the last like 24 hours. It's always like right before the holiday. I'm like, okay, I need to get everything in. I feel like I know nothing about it. I've been in Jewish day school. I did my undergraduate degree in American Jewish history, you know, my PhD in Jewish thought. And every time a holiday rolls around, I'm like, I know nothing. I forget everything. I have no idea what's going on. So I just did a refresher. And Purim is so striking because it's so mundane. It's the only holiday, really, that is not something that's set aside as like this holy day, this Yom Kodesh, this Yom Tov, this day where you have to set aside your life and be in the holiday and in the spirit of the holiday. It's meant to penetrate your life. It's meant to be in your life, which I think really speaks to the story, which in a way is kind of mundane. Like, it's just the trials and tribulations of the Jews who were living in this land after exile, which, like, that's most of Jewish history. And there's a woman who was chosen. She didn't choose to do the job that she did. She was chosen. And she had a role to fill. And every time I think about it, I just think about how it's exactly what you said, Abby. Like, everybody has that thing that they're supposed to do, that they were put here to do. And you can kind of be aware of it. You cannot be aware of it. But there's a moment that hits where you realize that it's your time to shine. And it's very similar to Moses, actually. Like, he's in the desert. God comes to him and is like, you're going to take the Jews out. And Moses is like, I, I can't do that. What are you talking about? He's like, new phone, who dis? <laughs> new phone, who dis? I got a stutter. Can't talk to a lot of people. What's happening right now? Esther says the exact same thing. Mordecai tells Esther, this is what's going to happen. Esther's like, yeah, but like, I, the king didn't want me to come to him, and I, I'm not going to come to him. And Mordecai was like, okay, you can do that, but like odds are you're going to be killed if this, you know, another Jew is going to come save the Jewish people this time, but who knows what's going to happen next year. Like the king could be over you next year and your time could be gone. And so you need to seize this moment. And then Esther is kind of awoken from this metaphorical slumber and is like, okay, I will do it. But I don't know if this is too hot a take to say, but there's really nothing that special about Esther. Like the thing that, that she stands out for is her beauty and even then, in the actual text, the person who chooses Esther, so there's just really fascinating, I get into the letter changes <laughs> in the Megillah, and one of the powerful things that's said about the Megillah is that God is not present in the Megillah at all. There's no writing. God's name doesn't come up. So where is God in the story? I believe, and others have argued, that he appears in the changing of the, in the letters. Esther's name is Hadassah. The hey represents God. My theory is there's an interesting moment where this man, Hege, who is the king's eunuch, who is sent to the different provinces to find the beautiful women, he finds Esther. And when the king tells him to go out, he's presented as Hege, Hey Gimel Aleph. And then when he is about to meet Esther, he's presented as Haggai, Hey Gimel Yud. And Yud is also a representative of God's name. And there's no reason why. It doesn't say, like, why he liked Esther. She just was somebody that, like, struck his fancy. He just liked her. And was like, I'm going to make you the person who gets the finest ointments and the finest oils. And I'm going to make sure that you make you and your maidens come to the king. There's no explanation for why Esther did absolutely nothing to earn that spot. But she was just chosen for that. And that switch, I think, shows us that God is present in those moments of just feeling, right? Like, Hege just felt drawn to this woman. 
pursued that. And that woman just happened to be the savior of the Jewish people. But she didn't do anything at any point to get that role, really. But it doesn't really matter because she was still chosen. That, to me, in my very long toast on Purim over a glass of wine, that, to me, I think is what Purim is all about, that every single person has a role that they're put here to fill, to do, a job that they're put here to do. And it doesn't really matter whether you're fully aware of that. The kind of pieces fall in place that push you in that direction. And it's up to every person to choose to take that and seize that and take on that responsibility. And then I also have like Playboy Bunny comparisons and Hugh Hefner. Like we can get into it. (laughs) Okay, we will get there. It's funny, you know, Abby, you mentioned Melania. I think in like a few years ago, everyone thought Ivanka was going to be the Queen Esther. There's something about this holiday where there are a lot of motifs that we use, right? Haman is actually on the lake. He's actually Hitler. He's sort of like every enemy of the Jews combined. And we use the grogger every time his name is spoken. And Queen Esther is sort of a a stand-in for someone who is like adjacent to power and maybe could have some influence there. And Mordecai is sort of almost like a court Jew a little bit. Like he's he's on the inside, he's on the outside. He's The characters of the story really remain resonant in modern life. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about Vashti, Queen V. She has a tough go of it. I think isn't the line like he wanted her to appear in just her crown to show off her beauty. And like we learned that in Hebrew school as children. And I now know that there are a lot of feminist interpretations of Vashti, and she's actually taken on this sort of whole new life as a heroine in her own right. I mean, could you sort of break down? I feel like you both have a lot of the inside scoop on our girl Vashti. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was listening in preparation for this to a a lecture given by uh, Dr. Erica Brown, who is kind of the, the Esther expert. And she was talking about how she had a friend who named her dog Vashti. And she said, why did you name your dog Vashti? And she said, oh, because he never obeys. He never listens. <laughs> and I thought, my God, and she said, like, that's that's just all wrong. I mean, it's just, Vashti has, I think now, in a way, been reappropriated or saved from this idea that she's that wife that doesn't obey her husband. She had, in a way, more courage than Esther because Esther takes a while to screw her courage to the sticking place. It's almost at the 11th hour that Esther steps in. Vashti right away was like, you want me to get naked and dance for your guests? I'm not doing that. We haven't talked about the fast of Esther, which precedes Purim, which I did in my intensive Jewish dive. It was one of the six fasts I didn't know existed. I thought one was plenty. But you're supposed to fast before Purim, which is very hard to do because then you slam into into the scotch tasting that I discovered kicks off the Megillah reading. But it's because Esther fasted. She fasted before she went in to see her husband trying to gather her courage. She basically fasted with her people. Like, this is the way I'm going to get ready for this is I'm, I'm going to, in a way, strip everything down and get into a space of bravery. And I just think that that is important to think about now. It's like, how do we prepare for that moment? Well, Vashti didn't, she didn't fast. She just said no. And in a way, is she not the role model that has gotten short shrift here? I don't know. I think of that as like sending good vibes because she had the whole, all of the Jews fast with her. She asked Mordecai to tell all of the Jews. I just think of it as the fulfillment of like sending good vibes your way. <laughs> I'm fasting The original version. <laughs> the original good vibes was fasting. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting that I picked up on when I was reading through the Megillah that the first chapter, I think, is a kind of commentary, like Brene Brown style on shame. And I guess it really culminates in like full on Brene Brown in the first line of chapter two. But the whole reason, so Vashi says no. And the king is like, shit, what am I going to (laughs) do? What do I do with this? And he talks to his judges and the people who are up on politics in the day. And he's like, Okay, so like, what are the um, measures taken against this? Like, Vashi did this. What's happening in the town? What's happening around me? And the men are like, well, she is going to be a symbol of power to other women. If other women catch wind of this, they're all going to start standing up to their husbands. We cannot have that. There's going to be madness. We need to make sure that this does not get out. And so you have to kill her. That's the only thing. The king actually doesn't order to kill her. Like He does not push on the decree to kill her. He is actually somebody who I think is surprisingly kind of powerless in himself. And so then the second chapter opens right after Vashi's killed. It says, after the king's anger had abated and he was thinking about what Vashti had done, he was sad. I think the commentary added the sadness, but he's thinking about it and his anger is gone. 
And it literally says these young guys, his young men come in and they're like, whoa, you're feeling shame for something. This isn't right. We're going to get you some hot young virgins. They're going to all come to you. (laughs) We're going to make sure that you get all the finest women. Get rid of this sadness. It has no place here. You're the king. And you're going to pick out the one. This is where the Hugh Hefner comes in. You're going to pick out the one who's your favorite, turns you on the most, and you're going to keep her. But like, get rid of all of this shame that you have. Get rid of it. The king never actually acts himself. He doesn't do anything from his own volition, really. It's from all the people who are around him, which I think is fascinating. And the the execution of Vashti is really a result of shame. What are people going to think if they see that my wife didn't listen to me? What's going to happen to the other husbands in their homes if their wives stop listening to them? And then when he's not thinking in that mindset anymore this pure Brene Brown, he comes back and (laughs) I think he was probably on the road to be like, oh, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. But then these young guys come in and they're like, no, no, no. Distract him. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Ahasuerus, a silly, silly king. uh, I mean, that whole song, he is weak-willed. And so that's why he's able to be manipulated by Haman, Haman. Like, you know, this is, and this is why Esther can convince him. I mean, there's this idea that he is sort of up for grabs in a lot of ways for whoever has last spoken to him, which may resonate, you know, may have recent political resonance, but we're over that now. Let's talk about this drinking of Purim. The injunction is drink until you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordecai. Why Why is it that we do that? And Abby, it is interesting. There aren't that many times at which we are called, you know, there's like occasional schnapps after services, but, you know, Jewish holidays aren't necessarily these like bacchanal events. Does this have to do with like Ahasuerus' parties? I mean, what is sort of the, the origin of that? It's the counter-programming. We know this is awful. And we've had so many times that that we've been nearly wiped out. This is our rebellion is to just kind of get flat out sloshed and have a party. You're not going to write this story for us. We're going to take it back. You know, Jackie Mason said this joke. I know that Kylie's too young to remember Jackie Mason, the comedian. I met Jackie in a McDonald's in Times Square. Whoa, okay. (laughs) You've trumped me. But he said, you know, Gentiles are always looking for their next cocktail and Jews are always looking for their next meal. This is one of those holidays where I realized of many, actually in my Jewish year, when I was taking the deep dive, that we get drunk a lot. People don't realize you're supposed to also get drunk before before Simchat Torah. You know, we have four cups of wine on Passover. You're supposed to drink them all. You know, we shouldn't ignore the alcohol of our people. (laughs) We are not just eating brisket and over-salted matzo balls. I think that there is something unfettered, kind of like unleashed about this that we should actually pay attention to because there is something that our tradition is telling us that there are times you should let loose. There's so much control. There's so much program, strictures, architecture, which I think is beautiful and remarkable. But there are times where sort of kind of the gates are supposed to open and we're just not supposed to be in a way responsible for our own actions. And it doesn't quite square with the story for me, but I, I think it's something we should pay attention to. This this is one of those times where Jews should be out of control. I love this idea. And Kylie, Abby, you have made me very excited for this holiday. I think this is the only pre perm <laughs> discussion that brings up Brene Brown, Moses, dogs <laughs> named Vashti. It has everything. So Kylie Yunel, Abby Pogerman, thank you so much for being my co-hosts, my co-pilots on this very special Parham episode. And may we get so drunk that we don't know the difference between, I don't know, Esther and Vashti. Let's, let's like, let's raise the stakes this year. I love that. I mean, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. First guest on this Purim holiday special is Anna Solomon. She's the author of several wonderful books, most recently The Book of V. She's on a quest to completely subvert everything we've been taught, everything we think we know about Vashti and Esther too, for that matter. Welcome, Anna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is your season. I want to talk to you all about (laughs) Vashti. So you wrote a great piece for Tablet last year around this time about rewriting the story of Vashti. So when did Vashti become someone you really started thinking critically about? From the time I was a pretty young girl watching the Purim spiel at my synagogue, I wondered, you know, what is the deal with this woman? She was often dressed as a prostitute. Sometimes the story was that she maybe was a leper. Sometimes it seemed like she may be a leprous prostitute, but nobody really could answer the question of A, 
what she did that was so bad and B, why she was banished. And it stuck with me, even as, you know, I bought the overall line, which was that she was bad and Esther was obviously the good one. It was her book after all. And as a young girl, I was supposed to want to be her and I dressed up as her, et cetera. And then when I became a mother and was given a book of Esther, a children's version to read to my kids and thought, well, this might explain things and simplify it only made my questions sort of larger and more complex because as it turned out as an adult, when I looked at the story, I thought, wait a second, Esther, whether willingly or not, seems to actually be a concubine in a harem. And Vashti seems to be making what is sort of inarguably a fairly virtuous choice if she's saying, no, I do not want to parade naked in front of you and your friends to Ahasuerus. You know, it's funny because we learned this story as little Jews in Hebrew school very young. I mean, I remember... He wanted Vashti to come down. She said, no, she gets killed. And you write in the piece that no one wants to dress as Vashti. Like back in the day before Purim became like Jewish Halloween and you dressed as whatever you want. Right. You know, it was like you'd be Mordecai or Haman or Ahasuerus or Esther. But like being Vashti, what do you even dress as? You were not Vashti. It just wasn't done. The other part of it was that you didn't even get to be on stage for long if you were Vashti. <laughs> so I found that offensive too or just, you know, unappealing. Where do you go when you want to start finding, you know, different interpretations of this, of this character? Well, I went to my rabbi first, Rachel Timoner of Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope in Brooklyn. She really helped guide me sort of how to ask the questions I had and where to go all the way back to the Babylonian rabbis. And then I sort of realized and that there had been a lot of writing about Vashti up until recently, there was a, an amazing book edited at the end of the 19th century by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the early American suffragist, called The Woman's Bible, which is, as it sounds, you know, she had people write about the various women in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And there's a whole section on Vashti in there that reclaims her as this feminist hero. And some of the ancient rabbis, I should say, also saw her as that. And then I was looking a lot at the second wave women's movement texts as well from the 70s, you know, the poems and manifestos that were reclaiming her just as they were also at that time reclaiming Lilith, let's say, and, and Miriam. Let's talk a little bit about your book, The Book of V. Of course, you have the epigraph is that Elizabeth Cady Stanton quote from the women's Bible, which I love, which is I've always regretted that the historian allowed Vashti to drop out of sight so suddenly. So your book sort of takes these narrative strands of sort of the, the ancient Vashti and, and brings her to life in a few different fictionalized forms. We tell us about some of those forms we meet? In my book, there are really two Vashtis. And I create a character named Vivian Barr, who we meet in 1973, Washington, D.C. She is a senator's wife, just as Vashti is a queen. We meet her in a moment and at the beginning of a night and a party that is really much like the party that we read about in the original book of Esther, and in which we see her being forced to make a choice between being really sort of debased in her own home or being banished. And she is banished. I don't think it says too much. It gives away too much about the book to say that she winds up being banished. And then we get to see where she goes from there all the way up until her old age. So that's one Vashti. And then I create another. And I think it's fair to say without giving too much away, because we don't really meet our original kind of ancient Vashti until later in my book, that she becomes a very important part of how the book of Esther comes to us and how we know the story as we know it. So why is it important, do you think, as women right now? It's 2021. I mean, are we still teaching young girls that Vashti, like, defied her husband? I mean, that's what she did. He wanted her to do something terrible. And even if she was the bad person, we like I feel like we all learned these things about her. She was evil. She wasn't nice to her servants. I mean, right. she didn't deserve any of this, really. And, you know, I... In, preparing sort of like my opening story of Purim that opened this episode, a lot of the online sources say like Vashti disobeyed her husband and she was banished. And you're like, okay, let's unpack that a little more. She didn't just like not do something on a whim. She didn't do something very, this idea of debasement. I mean, that's the perfect word for it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how far we've come. I think we've come a ways in that like this year, for instance, there's this new illustrated book out called Queen Vashti's Comfy Pants. I don't know if you've seen this for little kids. <laughs> and it totally starts to get at some of these questions like, what if she just didn't want to parade her beauty? What if she was comfortable the way she was? Can't she stay in her comfy pants? I mean, that's a sort of one version of it. But I think that we have a really long way to go in the sense that we still have this story. I mean, there's a reason that we have the binary that we do, right? Because the whole purpose, if you read it a certain way, and this is how I came to read it through my research, of 
the book of Esther is to create a justification for the celebration of Purim. And so, well, Vashti is really negligible and she doesn't matter because she's only there as a plot point to make way for Esther, right? And so you can read it all that way. But as we all know, the absent and maligned characters of our texts, in particular women characters, often hold, I think, the clues to a lot of the messaging that we've been given as women and as men about what we can be and what we should be. And I'm thinking not even just of biblical texts. I'm thinking right now of like Wide Sargasso Sea, where Jean Rees takes Jane Eyre, takes the mad woman in the attic and brings her out of the attic and allows her to be our narrator, right? Like I've always been really interested in texts like this. And I think that for me, the traditional way that we've been taught and that we talk about the Book of Esther and that many people still do creates these binaries and these categories, in particular when it comes to women, and certainly when it comes to good and evil as well, right? You know, Vashti is bad. Vashti is wanton. She may be an anti-Semitic servant-beating woman, which is another (laughs) midrash, quite interesting. And Esther is virtuous. She's brave. She's good. She's beautiful. And and which one do you want to be, right? And, And when we think in these terms, it does us a disservice because we don't realize that all of us, I think, contain all of this. Like none of us fit into one or the other. And I think it's really important that we start to tell more complex, true stories. This is one of the holidays that really gets ingrained in your head is if you grow up Jewish, if you were born Jewish, I mean, these are the stories you remember as a kid. And thinking about it now, really interrogating it, I think this idea that like no one knew Esther was Jewish, I think I always imagined her being like, blonde and beautiful. Like, I think there's a way in which I actually, like, idealize this gentilic. I mean, of course, that is not, this was ancient Persia. No one, I don't know that anyone was blonde necessarily, but like this, I had this like very Americanized ideal of, of what beauty was versus Vashti, who was sort of like beautiful too, but they are these poles and they sort of have to function that way narratively, right? Because as you say, like we get rid of Vashti and we have Esther. So Esther isn't this sort of perfect character either, right? If you really sort of start thinking about what it is that she did and she wasn't in a great position either. How has Esther become complicated to you? Just on a factual level, she is a concubine in a harem. It really wouldn't have been a great situation. And that for many, even wives of kings, it would still have been a situation in which they were largely subjugated and not given a lot of privilege and certainly not given a lot of power. And then the other piece, which I think shifted my thinking about her a lot too, were some of my kids' questions around beauty and around, well, why did she not put on any makeup and all the other ones did, right? Because that's kind of this essential part of our story is not just that she was beautiful, but that she was a natural beauty. Pure. Um, And she was pure. (laughs) Exactly. She was really like this. But then I started to think, well, yeah, why didn't she make an effort? Like, what does it mean when someone doesn't make that effort? And maybe she maybe didn't want to become queen in the way that we think she did. And maybe that makes even more sense if we think about the fact that she was being sent to a harem (laughs) instead of to like some amazing, like you were saying, as girls, we always learned this story and it was like, oh my gosh, lucky Esther. She's in the palace. Yeah. She's in the palace. (laughs) But when you really look at history, you see that this is not at all a situation that probably one would have wanted to be in as a young woman. You know, it's funny. I think of Purim as like the first place I've heard the phrase like feminine wiles. Yes. There is this idea that like Esther seduces her husband, right? The king. And she sort of gets him I mean, this is after she fasts and really prepares for this, but she sort of says, like, what do I need to do to get this guy to listen to me? And that idea of this sort of like woman with this power over, I mean, these are not great messages. I mean, I'm so curious for someone if you, let's say, converted at a later age, right, or came to Judaism later. Are you more skeptical of this story right away than the people who just feel like, wait, what is this story? And it almost feels like when you do have kids, that's like you're reliving this as an adult and you're just like, wait, what were we doing then? I think that's a huge part of it. And it's definitely a big part of what I explore in the book for each of my characters through the different time periods, because there's a contemporary character, there's a 1970s one, and then there's ancient Persia, where you see all of these women are working out the question of sort of how they use their bodies really, and their power in their bodies and how it is also used against them. And I think that like nowhere is this more sort of played out than in the book of Esther. And and it is amazing. It's striking that it is so often seen as a story for children when it is in (laughs) fact such a debaucherous, burlesque, complex story full of licentiousness and sex. And you say that this wasn't necessarily meant to be like telling the historical record, right? Like this holiday 
has taken on a new meaning for a lot of us. It wasn't necessarily, the Book of Esther was not written the way we interpret it necessarily today. Yes. And that was something really interesting that I right away sort of realized in my research. And like the Elizabeth Cady Stanton epigraph you quoted about the historian letting Vashti go out of sight so quickly. I think until that time, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but often the Book of Esther was seen as a piece of history. And when you go even to go look in a sort of superficial way, like what was it like for Jews in ancient Persia? Everything leads you to the Book of Esther as if that's a source of history. (laughs) But, you know, one of the sources, the source I used the most was Adele Berlin's JPS commentary on the Book of Esther, in which she really breaks down the ways in which the Book of Esther is its own fiction posing as historical record and the ways in which it goes to great lengths to pose as that. It gets full of sort of edicts and annals and, you know, all of this official language, which to her reading of it is all to just up the farce of the entire book and to kind of play at all of the stereotypes that it plays with about Persian culture and Jewish culture and all of, you know, because it is, it's a carnival holiday. And I think one of the things that was very fun for me was to start understanding the text as being really intentionally hilarious. So the Book of V came out in 2020. I mean, as you're now hitting this this next Purim, I mean, do you feel like totally exhausted by the holiday? Are you researched out? Do you have new thoughts about it? Are you making hamantash? I mean, what are you sort of doing to celebrate (laughs) this holiday that you know too much about now? (laughs) Totally. So the book came out in May. This is my first Purim as the author of Book of V. So really what I'm doing is talking to people about the book. and And it's a pleasure because I'm finding that people are reading it and coming to me and saying, I am not going to think about Purim in the same way again. Like this has changed forever the way that I see these characters. And that's a really gratifying thing to hear as an author. Anna Solomon, thank you so much for being with us today. We are celebrating the Book of V. I'm excited for the holiday that is going to be based on the Book of V as opposed (laughs) to the Book of Esther. Um, It's been a real treat to talk with you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Frances Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mark and Liel also wanted to get in on the Purim fun this week. Next up is Liel's conversation with Shana Trapito about Esther, beauty pageants, and America. 
It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to this very festive Purim episode, Dr. Shana Trapito, who teaches English at Stern College and is just an amazing scholar and writer about all kinds of aspects of Jewish life that you didn't necessarily think about, like, for example, beauty pageants. Dr. Trapito, welcome to Unorthodox. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. So you wrote an incredible chapter in a new book that I also have the privilege of being a contributor to, edited by our dear friend and friend of the show and former guest, Dr. Stuart Halpern. The book is called Esther in America. It's about how Esther is alive and well in the American imagination. And even though I thought I knew so much about all the different ways in which the book of Esther kind of really inspired generations of Americans to see themselves, not just American Jews, but Americans in general, to think of themselves and of their nation throughout the generation. You told a story that I didn't know. So tell me about Catherine Spector. Who was she? Oh, well, Catherine Spector, I also didn't know until our good friends do it said, how do you feel about doing some research on Esther in America? (laughs) So my path was the same. And just in looking at the history of Esther in America, I found these kind of beauty contests that came up and became this cultural phenomenon in America within the Jewish community all across America. They start in New York, New Jersey, they make their way into Chicago, Indianapolis, California. And one of the very first recipients of the title of Prettiest U.S. Jewess in America. <laughs> Hold on. That was actually the title. Prettiest U.S. Jewess. Yeah, say it three times fast. <laughs> and Catherine Spector was a 19-year-old doe-eyed, dark-haired beauty. It wasn't the first contest. I think it was their third annual contest, but it got bigger and bigger every year. So it's in 1933, March 11, Perm Day, and in Madison Square Garden with about 20,000-plus people in attendance, she wins this wonderful title out of 300 contestants. Now, this was just one of the bigger versions of this contest, but they were happening all over. And they kind of came up alongside the Miss America pageant that started in 1921. It began in Atlantic City on the boardwalk, kind of as this stunt to get people to continue coming at the end of the summer. Like, we'll just display our teens and rank them based on their bathing attire and see how that goes. But it kind of quickly became a Jewish phenomenon, and the pageants ran the same way. So local newspapers would run these, you know, prettiest Queen Esther contests, and girls would mail in their photos, or I imagine their mothers would probably mail in their photos. (laughs) It would be narrowed down by judges, and then those people would come in, and they would compete at the regional level, and then go on to, like, the national level, and so forth. But the funny part about Catherine Spector was there was so much controversy around her, because First of all, before she entered the contest, she was a singer. She was a performer. She was, you know, destined for Broadway. And she enters this contest and her title winds up being revoked because one of the stipulations of the Queen Esther pageant is that you have to be a Jewish girl. And by girl, they mean virgin. Um, You know, like the Queen Esther pageants of old. Actually, if you look at the McGill, it's very not a virginity contest, but maybe that's for a different episode, at least according to the commentary. So Catherine Spector is exposed as having a husband and therefore is disqualified. She sues this newspaper that runs this big story about her for imputing unchastity to her. And she engages in about a seven-year-long like <laughs> libel suit. At the end of that time, you know, she says, this was like my big break and all of these Hollywood folks were showing interest. Now they've pulled their contracts. And anyway, she actually wins on appeal seven years later, some of like $11,000 at the time. But the other thing that I found that was so shady when you really dig deep is that one of the judges for that particular contest, he was billed as like a famous noted Hollywood director. The famous noted Hollywood director is D.W. Griffith, who directed The Birth of a Nation, which was a very clan-sympathizing <laughs> retelling of the Civil War era. So this was just such a wonderful and terrifying irony that here you have this complete anti-Semitic racist Klansman sympathizer judging a Jewish beauty contest. I really wish I could find out more about how he kind of got pulled into this. I I wonder if it was a form of penance. (laughs) Like, I don't know. So we don't have too much about that. It was the panel was all men where they try to get celebrities. I mean, there were some points where these things became huge, like Yiddish stage stars like Stella Adler were coming and performing at them. They really were like earlier versions of, of Miss America slash 
Cirque du Soleil, like there were performers and vaudeville and, and things like that happening. But eventually they die out. We have the Great Depression and then World War II. And while the Esther pageants don't really continue beyond the early 1940s, I should say, we have clippings and newspapers of these girls whose pictures are in local magazines and local newspapers and shul bulletins congratulating them. And the other thing about Catherine Spector and the women who'd won before her was that it wasn't just a beauty contest. You would also be awarded with a trip to Palestine. So you and the runner-up, who is considered your lady-in-waiting, would would win an all-expenses-paid trip to Palestine. And your job was to go on these goodwill missions, you know, shake some hands, meet some people, represent American Jewry. Uh, Let me ask you this. Before we even talk about these trips and about these pageants dying out, you write in, in this chapter that beauty pageants are interesting because they represent some kind of almost like communal id, right? They represent some kind of spirit of of a community grappling with a sense of change in its own perception and identity. So what what's going on in the American Jewish community as these Esther pageants are becoming popular and how are they the way of the community to figure itself out? You have to keep these contests in context here. So 1920s, 1930s, America has just experienced this age of mass immigration, mass migration. They have now a huge, like 2 million Jews, you know, in a span of a couple decades have now come into America and they're trying to make a life for themselves. But it's not just Jews, of course, it's Italians, it's Irish, it's Greek, it's Slavic. So many immigrants in this cultural, the original melting pot of America. So what I found very interesting that we learn in the Megillah, right? We're told that when King Ahasuerus has this contest to find a replacement wife, that from India to Ethiopia, he has 127 provinces. And the Megillah specifically says, and each community spoke their own language, right? right? So what that really shows us is that it was an expansive territory with a ton of smaller little cultural enclaves. And what the commentary says is that each community held a regional pageant where they would elect kind of like Miss Ethiopia and she would go on to Shushan to the capital to represent her community and their ideal version of their female beauty on behalf of that community. And then they would all travel to Shushan to compete. So that is troubling in the sense that it really lines up with this period in American history where not only do you have a huge multicultural experience happening, but particularly for women, it was a very charged time because 1920s, rise of the suffragist movement, women are now having more independence by gaining access to the workforce and financial independence. So you had women who were both American, but also more independent and trying to figure out how, like all Jews in the diaspora, who are we in this context? And that's the, you know, the poem story in the nutshell, or at least one of the bigger questions that is all over Esther in America. And I think it's a question that, you know, is very much being asked today. And the way that these contests, if you if you look at them, there's so much, you can imagine how much shade was happening in the harem, right? You have all of these women <laughs> who are just like representing, you know, it's Miss Mississippi and Miss Indiana and, you know, from all over. And they have to live together for a year. I can't imagine that that space was bias-free, bigotry-free, right? There had to be so much prejudice and xenophobia within that, you know, especially when you make women compete. So that's a very charged moment. I think it's very representative of that early period where, you know, if not only if your name is Jewish, but if you sort of looked Jewish, it could have prevented you from having access to employment, all sorts of things that were happening then. So today, with all of the discussions and, you know, Unorthodox and the Tablet, you guys have been doing a wonderful job of really trying to get at what it is about the concept of Jewish, like, whiteness and how do we approach it. But I think with the Megillah, what Esther in the actual Megillah story becomes is she's kind of like tofu. And what I mean by that is that we are told that she gains acceptance from everyone that looked at her. She has chayn. Every community that looked at her said, oh, you know what? She's one of ours. She must be Macedonia. This is clearly one of ours. So the idea is that beauty becomes, beauty is always biased, right? We're always projecting. There's this narcissistic way of projecting. If someone gains 
acceptance, because that's how I read Esther's beauty, is it's access, it's acceptance. We don't know how tall she was. We don't know what her hair color was. We don't know anything about her proportions or, you know, any of that. Arguably, she didn't look Jewish if nobody like had any inclination that she was. She's able to conceal her identity. I mean, I, I imagine Fran Drescher here, just because that's <laughs> how I want to imagine it. On, on this note, though, because this is really interesting, you, you get at something in your chapter that you call the Esther aesthetic, and you sort of bring up an interesting sort of historical correlate you write about Helena Rubinstein, right, who revolutionized our notion of beauty. And you write about how before she came along, makeup was was culturally associated with, with vice, right? It was not something that you could take pride of. And, and you said, here was a woman who was changing all that and also a woman whose own personal understanding of beauty was deeply multicultural, deeply progressive for its time. And, and you write in the book that this might have something to do with, with Esther. I want to quote one line. Investing in beauty, you write, for the sake of self-indulgence, distraction, and shaming others is displayed as antithetical to Jewishness in the Esther narrative. In other words, Esther is remarkable precisely because she's not your prototypical or what we would think about as your prototypical beauty pageant winner. So do you think this Esther aesthetic is, is still among us or has the age of Instagram mm. reverted us back to a, a cruder, earlier notion of beauty. I could see it going both ways. I think the Megillah gives us both versions, right? You have a Vashti and you have an Esther and beauty can be destructive for sure. It can be constructive and redemptive in a certain way. For me, the Esther aesthetic is that beauty is not about physical features as much. It just is a means for access and acceptance. And once people have accepted or welcomed you in, unfortunately, through that ocular frame, right? That means that your obligation is now to use that privilege, and I'm going to call it a privilege, for the sake of others. So the Esther aesthetic, to me, it's not just a woman who is gaffe or you know typically considered beautiful. It's what you do with that. So not to get too punny, but beauty in the Esther text is really all about application, right? How are we using it for others? And the cosmetic background is really key. Using cosmetics to change your facial features, right, was a form of self-expression at the time. It was a really empowering thing. Today, though, I mean, it's interesting. The Miss America pageant was supposed to have its 100th year commemoration, and that didn't happen because of the pandemic. But one of the things that the contest did recently was, of course, abandon the swimsuit competition in an effort to maybe undo or kind of do penance for all of the social ills that come with pageants, like the indulging in the male gaze and all of the social ills of having women be primarily valued based on looks versus intellect or character. So with the dismissal of the swimsuit pageant and kind of rebranding as a scholarship program, they're kind of moving toward something that Esther has been put up as a paradigm for centuries ago, which is that beauty or any kind of acceptance needs to be used to help others. It can't be self-directed. So I think that there is some hope there. I mean, Helena Rubin seems a fascinating character. There's a lot of things that she did. She marketed a type of beauty that is an individual's type. She was also, by the way, up against Elizabeth Arden, who was her biggest rival, the famous Red Door on Madison Avenue. She was deliberately marketing to kind of her uh, a waspy elitist group. Right. She like really positioned herself up against that. Helen Rubinson also said some very maybe unsavory things. Like she said, there is no such thing as an ugly woman, just a lazy one. <laughs> so I don't know that I would use her as like the the go-to for how we're to understand this. But I do think that the Esther model is one of, you know, Esther uses, she goes both ways. She rejects the cosmetics when she does not want to have herself be the sole beneficiary of an experience. But when she needs to go before a Hashverosh and ask and appeal for her people, she puts on her finest wear. She adorns herself, right? She's very rhetorical in the use of this capacity. So I see that as, as something that is inherently Jewish, right? Using whatever gifts you have, whatever talents you have, whether it's intellect or writing skills or oratory or physical features or whatever they are, anything that allows you to include and advocate for others, that's a Jewish aesthetic. That to me is the Esther aesthetic. Amen. Dr. Shannon Trapito, the chapter is the Esther aesthetic. The book is Esther in America. The holiday is Purim. The pleasure is all ours. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much, Leo. Finally, Mark wanted to find
find out what it's like to be Ahasuerus today. So we called up friend of the show, Shay Gatiri, to find out a little bit more about his namesake. Okay, special Gentile guest this week, Shay Katiri. He has been on the show before. He came to our attention when using GoFundMe, he raised a bajillion dollars for the families of the victims at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. He's just kind of the bomb. He's our favorite Iranian-American Jew-adjacent expatriate. How are you, Shay Katiri? I'm doing fine. Now, you have uh, an interesting fact about yourself that is Purim-related. Why is Purim a special holiday for you? My... Full name in Farsi is Khashoyar. In English, it translates into Xerxes, who happens to be a Khashverosh. So you were named for Xerxes, who is the same person as Hashveros. Not the greatest criminal of the Purim story, because that would be Haman, but like a bad dude in the Purim story. It's a funny thing, because I grew up in Iran knowing that I'm named after a great king. And then I leave Iran, and then I come to the United States and find out that, well, there is another side to this story, apparently, that was not very amusing. So my old roommate always liked to remind me, Shay, here you're the bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) So how much did you know about the Jewish story growing up in Iran? Not at all. It's unfortunately because the Iranian Jewish population has decreased a lot after the revolution throughout the years that I didn't grow up knowing any Jews. So my knowledge was very limited. I remember first few weeks of college, I was talking to a few Israeli friends and then I mentioned my name and I say like, yes, it's Xerxes. And then suddenly, as one expects, Israelis stop talking in English and they gather, they convene to scream at each other. And then the consensus comes out and says, oh, by the way, you're a Hashverosh. And I'm like, who that? <laughs> now that you've become so Jew adjacent, you have a lot of Jewish friends. I would say it's it's fair to say you kind of dig the Jews. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Should we find a new first name for you? Are you ready? To, you ready to leave uh, Xerxes behind? We can call you Fred or Yaron or Ari. Fred is sounds too goy. Uh, <laughs> let's go with something more Jewy. So here's what I think we need to do. I think I think your Purim name this year, anyway. You, you don't have to change it legally. Your Purim name should be one of those names that's kind of it's American, but it reads as very Jewish American. So you should be like a Milton or a Sydney or how about a Morty? Do you want to be Morty? Morty Katiri? Morty is good. I mean, Morty Seinfeld is my favorite Seinfeld character. <laughs> but here's the thing, Mark. You don't understand the value of being a Hashverosh during Purim. First, I don't have to find a costume. I'm already going as a Hashverosh. <laughs> Second, I have the best pickup line. Every single year, I go to women at the party and I say, Are you Esther? Boom. Why would I want to change that? That is slick. I'm going to call you Morty if you don't mind. I think you can go to the costume ball as a Hashverosh. But to me, I think you are now uh, Morty Seinfeld Katiri. And uh, I want to thank you. Always great to have you pop in. And, uh, you know, thanks as ever for being a perennial Gentile of the week. Of course. Thank you so much, guys. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us email at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live or virtually. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to find our unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group by searching unorthodox podcast on Facebook. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman-Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, and our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends, and happy Purim. <laughs>